This is the Organizational Health Advantage Podcast with Keith Hadley and James Felton, Principal Consultants at Table Group. They're in the business of coaching leaders to build strategic focus and cultural alignment that leads to amazing results. This podcast is for leaders who are looking to increase productivity and morale while decreasing politics, confusion, and unwanted turnover. Welcome to the Org Health Advantage. Welcome back to another episode of the Org Health Advantage podcast. I'm your co-host, James Felton, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Keith Hadley. Keith, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, James. And we are both thrilled because we are also joined by one of our colleagues, Rick Van Arnhem, who is based, I guess, sort of halfway between Chicago and Wilmington, and maybe a little bit in upstate New York. But RVA, good to have you with us. Yeah, it's great to see you guys. This is a good reunion. I miss seeing you out in Lafayette, California. So it's a pleasure this morning to see you both on the screen here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so Rick, who also who goes by RVA, so we're going to use both. Rick, tell us just a little bit about kind of your background. You, you're, you're a principal consultant table group. You're one of the first PCs that I met when I was exploring coming into this work. We had coffee at a Starbucks downtown Chicago. But since you've been doing this for a while, you're, you're kind of your stint at Table Group has taken a, a bit of an interesting turn. So just introduce yourself and, and kind of fill us in on what it is that you're working on these days. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me on on today. So, uh, you know, when a client asks me the same kind of question, I, I say, well, I have a very diverse background. You know, I spent 30 years in the Army. I was on active duty for six years, and I, I got out. I went back to business school, and then the balance was in the Reserve and the Guard. And as you guys know, I mean, today's September 12th, so yesterday was a big day. And, you know, when 9-11 hit, there were a couple of deployments. But the, the big thing for me, I guess, was coming back from Afghanistan in late 2010 or 11 and uh, meeting Pat and being able to come on as a principal consultant. So I think I've known you guys for like going on, you know, a dozen years. And then just kind of, you know, the fast forward stuff when COVID hit, I didn't really do well with, with Zoom. It's just not, I mean, we all want to consult in the room with our clients and COVID made, made it a challenge. So I had the opportunity to kind of come on board with an old-time client of mine out in Chicago, the Anthony Murano Company, and we, we distribute produce. So there's no shutdown in the you know, moving food business during COVID, and it gave me the opportunity to do a couple of things. First was to work on site. And secondly, was to do something a little bit different. And that was, I'm going to use a military word here, but basically embed with a client. Yeah. I went deep with a client. I came right on board, joined their executive team, and I've just been doing a ton of work throughout our building. We've got about a thousand employees over the last kind of three years. Yeah, that's amazing. And and Rick, this is a special one for me because I don't know if you recall, but I was with you at the uh, at the very first offsite with this client. We still talk about that offsite <laughs> a lot. It was not your normal offsite. No, I. It, it, that's what I just. I'm so curious to. I mean, I know a little bit of the story, but man, if if you had asked me uh, at that initial offsite, like, is this going to be a client that 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 RVA would eventually like embed himself with, actually join their executive team, and and observe them through a complete transformation process, I would have said no. Yeah. This, oh, this is not I, the I one I would have I would ever, out of the gate. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think I'd ever do work with them again. I mean, it was, it was awkward. And they, and they admitted that that offsite, Keith, that was the first time they had ever 
formed a leadership team. I mean, they put 10 people on. It was too big, and now it's about the right size. But they, you know, those 10 folks never had spent two days in a conference room together at all. I mean, and, you know, for the listeners out there, it was a company that was moving from a second-generation family-owned to a third-generation. So Antone's the third-gen, you know, uh, family member, CEO. So he knew they needed to do something different. He had no idea what what really, um, you know, what kind of work was required. But I didn't think, you know, I, I really didn't think that I'd do much with them after either. Yeah. So RVA, pa- pause right there for a second, if you don't mind. Like, how long had they been in business up to that point? Because I'm, uh, because I think it's fairly long for one, and two, it's just interesting that they didn't have a leadership team uh, and they didn't meet all that often. Yeah. So the company was founded in 1947. You know, the grandfather had served in World War II, and you know, it's the old Chicago markets where you know tomatoes came in on a truck and. You know, you just you sold them to people who would sell them on the corner and come back and pay for the tomato. I mean, that's how the produce business worked back then, and it just grew yeah. and grew. And I mean, the reason that there was there was not a, an executive team at the time, and we've seen this before, especially in family-run businesses. Yep. Um, you know, if you think about a second-generation business in the '60s and '70s, it's uh, you know kind of uh, very can be very authoritative it can be a little dictative you know one person can kind of hold all the cards um he did a super job very creative expanded the business but you know come 2015 2016 it's you you know four or five hundred employees you just can't run it without some simple systems and processes and a leadership team yeah yeah I, I wanted to give context. you a second just to, you know, we, we talk about the heroes of the story and I wanted to give you a chance just to brag a little bit about, about the CEO and maybe a little bit before we dive deep into how you've embedded this work deep in the organization. What, what was it about the executive team and the leader of the team? What did he get right? How long did it take him to get it right? You know, before, before you saw a real transformation. Yeah, I would say, you know, in, in 16 and 17, what he got right was um, in the Myers-Briggs world, he's an N. So he's, he has an extremely accurate intuition and gut. Hmm. And he knew, he just knew that things needed to be different, but he really had no idea what to do. So he yeah. got that part of it right. I mean, the advantage was simple. It was a simple blueprint. It made a lot of sense. But the thing that I'm probably most proud of um, Antone is, and his brother Damon, is their commitment to personal growth. Mm. Um, they have never stopped. I mean, he, he texted over this morning a couple of uh, short videos uh, from Instagram. I mean, he, he is just a continual learner. And I think um, part of his learning process, and hopefully for all of us, is that the more we kind of learn, the, it also kind of feeds you know, our humility we realize that we just really don't know a whole lot. And, um, and that, that's been a big, big game changer for him. And probably the thing that I'm most proud of watching him develop and grow. Yeah. Yeah. How, how has the team evolved in the last few years? Yeah. So the team has, um, it's not been a straight trajectory. Um, we have six members on the team right now. And um, I, I think half of us, four of the six are the same. I mean, I'm adding myself into that mix. Um, so it's a smaller team. Um, 
One of the things that we've discovered in the last couple of years, uh, really, I mean, I think we've known this, but we've really come to be far more aware of it, is in order to lead and lead well at our at, in the produce business, you have to have a passion for like walking around and being around people. I mean, the one advantage that Anthony Morano Company has is that all employees, except for about two dozen merchandisers and stores, are all under one roof. All right, so... Hmm. That's mm. kind of rare today when you think of the clients that we usually work with. Um, so that has to be an advantage for us. And the only way we can make it an advantage is if you, you know, military term, really love battlefield circulation. You got to like walk around, you know, the old HP management by walking around. You got to walk around. You got to talk to people. You got to understand what makes them tick. Um, and so that's that's been kind of a, a really good revelation in terms of, how we select and move our leaders around. Yeah. So I want to I want to pause right there because RVA that reminds me of a story that you told me once about being on a military base and you going around and checking in with different people. I'm going to get all the terminology wrong, so bear with me. But you know, like they would be at a post and you would go in and check with them and just talk and get to know them better. And now I'm hearing it again at this company and, and the need to do that. And yet you're an introvert and I don't know about the other people on the leadership team, but sometimes we, we let the introverts maybe like, all right, you, you know, circumvent that or look for other ways to go out and, and talk to people. But like, that's really important to you. So touch base on or talk more about that. Yeah. I mean, that's, I am an introvert, but I think if you go back to the motive and if you, if you answer the question, like, why do you want to lead? I mean, I've always loved people. I've loved teams. I've loved leadership and I love to see them do their, their best. And so for, you know, out the gate, maybe it's not the easiest thing to do, but I actually love it. And, um, yeah, there's actually a guard post up on the DMZ in Korea where I told you that story. You know, and, and what's also true about introverts is it's easier for us to get to know people in small groups. So I yes. would just go out to, you know, we had, we had lookouts, we had two man lookouts. And so I'd just go and chat with them for, you know, 10, 12 minutes at two in the morning. Um, but the principle applies. If you really are drawn to leadership for the right reasons, you should enjoy being with your team and, and, and being with your folks. It's critical. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I think so often, you know, the, the introvert leader might say like, Hey, my door is open, you know, I, but they prefer to be at the desk getting work done and stuff like that. And I, I just love the fact that you're saying like, doesn't mean you have to go and talk to big groups. It just means like, Hey, just pair it off and, and talk to, to people, you know, in smaller groups. And I, I what you also told me was, Hey, I was, I was going to need to ask them to do really hard stuff. Yeah. And they were going to need to trust me. And I knew that that they wouldn't trust me if I didn't actually build rapport and let them know that I cared about them. Yeah, that's right. And I just thought yeah. like that was so powerful. And that's true of the workplace too. Like obviously different circumstances, but we're still going to need to ask people to do hard things or a trusted decision that they might not agree with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think especially for executives and, you know, my case is in the military, I was an officer. And when you go talk to an enlisted um, soldier or if you're an executive and you go down on the floor and start talking to your, 
you know, your union wage worker, you know, you, maybe you don't start with, uh, hey, how many packages are you moving this hour? You know, you ask them about the weekend, you know, and you yeah. learn about their family and um, you got to put them at ease. Right. And then it's yeah. then they're going to start opening up and then you can talk about the business and whatever you need to talk about. But yeah, it's not rocket science. Yeah, I, I, I'm just thinking as you're saying this, Rick, like how how inefficient that must feel to some leaders that are very efficiency minded, especially in a in a production setting where it is about widgets per hour. And um, I'm reminded of that phrase that we always use at Table Group of you know going slow to go fast, and it's almost like slowing down enough to actually get to know people, uh, so yeah. that you can go you know fast later on or ask them to do hard things or. Or, you know, just be in it for the long haul with people. You know, there, there's there's a time where you're going to be making um, withdrawals on that bank account of relationship and trust. And, yep. um, and I, I think it's tough for leaders these, day, these days, especially more and more of our clients are in distributed work environments. And and I'm amazed at how, how much people are struggling with the return to office, even when they have a central location, just getting people back into the office. And, you know, how many conversations are having with executives about how to build rapport in a, in a distributed work environment. So I don't know if you have any advice there or if it's just double down, if you have the opportunity, see it as a competitive advantage. But what, what are your thoughts there? Well, I, I think the, you know, the remote, the distributed does make it tougher. I mean, and I, I don't, I'm not, I don't like the Zoom. I really don't. That's why I took this you know, this role three years ago, but I would tell folks if they're distributed or remote, um, make extra effort to get face to face throughout the year. And then when you get face to face, um, put your phone away and, and use the pockets, the social pockets of the day, the, the coffees, the lunches, the dinners, the cocktail hours to really take advantage of those times. So here's a, here's a good story. So I had a client, um, international client, spread across the globe, leadership team of, I think, uh, eight folks. So they kind of blew up our, our meeting model. It was very difficult, as you guys know, and people are <laughs> in Europe and the U.S. But what they did commit to was meeting every other month for three days in a different country. Wow. And so if you think about it, 18 days out of the year, you could probably do the math, 18 times, you know, probably 10 hour days. They probably spent as many hours face to face with one another by adopting that cadence than had they been kind of a traditional meeting cadence and a little bit closer in proximity. So you got to get creative. But the biggest thing is make it a priority to get face to face. And when you do, um, look folks in the eyes and stay off the phones. We have, it's it's just a lot more fun, isn't it? I mean, the conversations, (laughs) the curious questions, we actually enjoy that. I think we're built for that. Yeah. Yeah. I I think we actually live that a bit in our table group experience. I mean, we, we end up, you know, we typically go out in pairs with clients. You know, we work together with a lot of the same principal consultants, you know, and, we spend two very intense days with the client and then we have dinner the night, you know, before the first day, dinner after the night, you know, the night of the second or the first day. And I've thought about that a lot, that when we go 
do client work out in the field, you know, we're spending this very intense quality time, hours and hours together. And then that doesn't have to be followed up with like daily meetings, but we really end up getting close and going deep. And so I think yeah. there's, there's a lot to that. Yeah. I, I just want to touch base on the size of the team. You said when they started, yeah. it was 10. Now it's at six reasons behind the evolution there. And what have you seen as the positives there? So, you know, and this is what I encourage our PCs and clients to do. So they did not have an executive team. So my out the gate advice is to be cautious. I think it's easier to add people to the team rather than ask somebody to step off the team. But that's not how we started. So we just, you know, they, they picked 10 and it was, you know, I gave them, you know, the typical advice a team is between three and 12, six to eight is probably the sweet spot, but don't get it to a number, get it to the right you know, kind of expertise on the team. And so we started with 10. And just over time to move quicker, to move a little bit better, it just, uh, we don't need this, we don't need that. So we don't have IT directly represented on the team, for example. Um, When we started, Keith, we did have an IT rep on the team. So some of it is, um, you know, it's just kind of like learning. And we have been successful in asking someone to come off a team, we don't lose them. They don't like quit. They don't like put their resume out there. I mean, it's, it's a direct, polite, kind conversation, but there's always a lot of work to do. Compensation yeah. is where it needs to be. It's a great place to work and people can accept maybe a lesser role. And it's not that the roles necessarily is lesser. Maybe they have some you know, there's the responsibility isn't as broad, but what we need them to do in that seat that they're in is very important. Yeah. And, and again, to go back to the motive, not everybody is built to be, to be leading teams. Yeah. 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 That's great. Let me pivot a little bit. So, you know, James and I, when we've worked together, we've often drawn a continuum up on a board and said, you know, at some point this team went from unaware that organizational health was, was a thing. Um, was a science in and of itself to being aware of it. You know, maybe they read the advantage or somebody gave them a book and then they went somewhere along the line to being aware that they needed to become healthier as a company to really being bought into mastering four disciplines. And then from buy-in to mastery is a, is a big journey. So we've alluded to this, you know, when I first worked with you and this team, they were probably just really becoming aware of their needs. They weren't necessarily bought into one particular approach or system. They certainly weren't masters. Somewhere along the line, they really bought in. I remember meeting the entire team at the unconference that we had down in Dallas, and they were on board as a team. What we'd love to explore now is how do they get from being on board and bought in as a team and maybe even starting to master the disciplines how did they get that embedded through the rest of the organization? Just tell us a little bit about that process, maybe some of the things that you that are true of Murano today that weren't true initially, like just walk us through that embedding process. Well, you know, the, the first teams other than the executive team, Keith, that we went after, um, and I was still a consultant, so I say we, but that I went after was the sales team. So sales is the heartbeat of a company. I mean, we have we have eight commodity teams that are you know world experts on berries, fruit, potatoes, onions, tomatoes, and so we went after those teams. And I would say there was a pretty good tick up. Um, 
So there are a couple of things here going on. One is momentum. Like once once you begin to set a new standard for what's expected of a team, um, other teams and other leaders have to choose to be more like those high performing teams or less so. And they and so there's the there's the momentum. I mean, um, so I'll just pause. I want to come back to that. The second thing is in 2020 when I came on board. Um, having kind of more of a dedicated resource to help develop teams throughout the building, I think that started to change the game even more because I, I've spent a lot of time initially 2020, 2021, sitting in meetings, observing meetings. And so I, I, I think there's like of, of our four meetings, daily, weekly, ad hoc, or strategic and quarterly, I've probably done the most work with weekly and quarterly meetings with leaders, you know, in the belly of the organization, so to speak. And um, it's, you know, it's powerful to see teams do a regular meeting weekly. What's become very powerful is to see leaders take their quarterly offsites. And we don't always go offsite. We don't always spend a full day, but we do a lot of half day onsite where teams will spend half day in a conference room and on their own, they're kind of, and, and again, think in the sales world, they're coming up with their thematic goals. So, you know, we're coming into the fourth quarter. So if you're, if you're running potatoes and onions, this is a great quarter for you. We have these holidays coming up. And, and so we, we now have director level leaders being able to develop kind of their own thematic goals based on, you know, the team's needs and, and goals. Uh, but it's momentum. Once you get 20, 25 leaders in an organization kind of believing the same thing, if you don't believe it and if, you, if you're not behaving it, you, you kind of stick out. Hmm. And those who stick out, you know, eventually they're going to have to make a decision. They're, they're going to probably have to step back into an individual contributor role or maybe they're going to have to, you know, make themselves available to, to the street for different kind of work. So I was starting to, you know, before we hopped on here, um, before we hopped on, Keith, I was talking about like, you know, the best team exercise where we ask people yeah. to think about the best team they've ever been on, right? So I, I would challenge an executive team probably early in the relationship. Like think of the high performing teams in the company and what makes them high performing. And they're going to flip chart everything we know to be true. There's trust. They communicate well. They hold one another accountable. They've got some rigor to a scorecard. I mean, all of the behaviors that we know that work. And then we say, well, let's pick a team that has a reputation for underperforming. And usually the whole company knows it, right? We always pick on certain teams. And like, so what's going on in that team? Well, you know, they don't have trust. They don't meet very well. They don't make decisions. They're always missing their goals. And only just to kind of compare and contrast and to, and to set a vision, imagine if... Imagine if you had 40 teams in your organization. Imagine if 30 to 35 of them were really kind of on the high performance track. Hmm. What would that hmm. mean for your organization? And then casting that vision, I mean, every, there's not a leader on the planet who wouldn't say, yeah, I'd really like that. I'd like to have yeah. 80% of teams, you know, to be like that. Well, it's going to take work. It's, yeah. there's going to, there's going to have to be some rigor. You're going to need to put some resources to it. Yeah. You know, it can't just be you and it can't just be, you know, the C-level reports. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I was just going to say, I wonder if you working with the team, a, a, a theory I have is at the executive level, you, can, you can't always see who's bought into this work, but you can see it more if you work with all the teams that they lead. Like who's leading in the way we want the CEO to lead? And yeah. is that your experience? Was that true? Like yes. when you actually started working with those team twos, for example, like yeah. you started to see who was really bought into this and who wasn't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can go right back to the, my comment about battlefield circulation. I mean, there, there's a leader who, you know, basically told me, and, and then I, I asked him to say this at an offsite in front of his peers, but he said, yeah, I don't really believe in the one-on-one meetings. Mm. And, and he's, you know, not that age has anything to do with it, but, he was half my age. And I'm like, okay, really? So you don't see any value in the one that's, nah, you know, I don't. And he happened to be, you know, an introvert like me, kind of no sense of humor and kind of cold <laughs> and, you know, no heart or soul. I'm, I'm joking a little bit. But like, he could not see the value in having one on ones. So I, I asked him, I said, hey, you know, tell this to your peers. So I put him in, you know, in a difficult position with 12 other sales guys. Like, Hey, Josh doesn't believe in these one-on-ones. What do you guys think? You know, and they applied the pressure to him. But you absolutely begin to see it. You know, yeah. and you either believe in the motive, and you have five things that you can't, you know, five responsibilities that you cannot get away from, or you don't. And the only yeah. way to see it is like go spend time in the meetings, go walk the floor, go have some one-on-ones, go get a piece of pizza with somebody. I mean, you can pick it out. Yeah. Yeah. Rick, you've been referencing the motive a lot. I, I you know, I, I don't want to assume that somebody listening to this knows what that's about. Do you remember what those five are? If not, we could crowdsource it between the three of us and get them. But what what are those yeah. what are those five things that you just can't avoid if you're going to be a uh, responsibility driven leader? Yeah. So even before you get to the five, you got to ask the question: Why do I want to lead? Right. So if it's about the yeah. perks and the rewards and the salary and the title, that's not a really good reason. But if you're really interested in helping people and serving people and seeing other people who become the best version of themselves, then that's a great reason to lead. And if you choose to lead, then, you, you know, you got to build a team. you got to run a great meetings. You, you, got, you have to manage people. You, know, you got to let them know what you expect of them. Um, you have to have the difficult conversation. You know, the Alamalalis, hey, it's okay. We don't have a place for you, but it's okay. I'll still love you. you got to have those conversations. And then you got to be a chief reminder officer. You know, you, you got to say it a thousand times. And yeah. what we've done more and more with leaders is it's not to, you know, recite and to remind people. It's like tell stories. Look for yeah. the stories in the company of just like yeah. people hitting it out of the park or like showing up like you want them to show up and just going overboard to help customers and tell become a storyteller. I mean, that's yeah. you want to be a, a really good chief reminder officer, become a really good storyteller. Yeah, yeah. James, this reminds me of, of John Lindsay, a CEO that we worked with uh, for H&P. I was totally and, thinking about him. Yeah. And uh, he, he, uh, I think he coined this phrase. We talk about cascading communication, but he, he talked about cascading expectations. And it was early on in COVID. And, um, and he, he's, a, he's a leader who came up through the ranks. He, he, not in the military, but he would definitely understand this idea of battlefield circulation. But early in COVID, he, he just called each one of his executives just to check in with them at, at home and say, Hey, how is it going? You know, really? How, how are you doing? How is this? How are you surviving this, you know, this quarantine? And then he got to his, a meeting that we were on with him 
and their team. And he asked them, now, how many of you have called your direct reports? And it was like out of 10, like two or three. He's like, this week, I want you to call all of your direct reports. And by the way, I want you to expect your direct reports to call all of their direct reports. And when we're next in a meeting, I'm going to ask you about those conversations. And, you know, so he, he cascaded this expectation that every single person, 12,000 people in the company, his expectation is that every employee would get a call from their immediate boss within the next week. Yeah, and, that's good. You know, now the data on that, I don't know, but I bet you they got to you know at least nine thousand, and that's incredible. Yeah. You know, more than just you know that just would have happened by chance, just because that was something that was important to him. But he had to over communicate that and then reinforce it and just expect everybody in the organization to do it. But yeah. I think one of the things that struck me in your story is that just because the CEO is leading the team the CEO leads through this experience of becoming more cohesive, more clear, more focused, more aligned. You can't assume that each of those team members is going to pick up that energy and do it with the same rigor and the same passion at the next level and the next level and the next level until you get to the front line. Yeah. Yeah. How did you ensure that this happened? How did you get to the front lines? Well, I think, um, you know, for me, I've learned and, I try to keep growing as well. I mean, I'm a doer, so, you know, I just like pile the work on, let me get it done. But what became clear to me was, um, well, two things, and it, it wasn't my idea. People came to me. Um, I have, I've had a couple of people in the company um, in different roles, operations, sales, come to me and said, hey, Rick, how can I do what you're doing? And so, you know, kind of eventually the light bulb clicked. I mean, I'm also at a point where, you know, I'm 61 years old. I'm never going to retire, but I don't know that I want to work like I did 10 years ago. So you, the only way that you can, you know, create more margin for yourself is if you develop people underneath you. And um, the other thing that's in the back of my mind is you guys know the statistics. It's hard to go from gen one to gen two. It's harder to go from two to three near impossible to go from the third to the fourth. And there's only, you know, tiny percentage of companies that are in a fifth or a sixth generation. So um, this company is probably 10 to 20 years away from, you know, going to a fourth gen. So we've, we've built internally, we've built a team of basically, we call ourselves a table group team. And there are, you know, the young folks who came to me with, passion and said, I want to do what you're, what you're doing. And so this year, 2023, that's been kind of my big rock is developing a team of five. In fact, as we sit here today, we have two folks out going through Myers-Briggs. We've got people who've been through working genius. Um, we're building a team. And so my other advice here is, you know, I've done a lot of train the trainer sessions over the years. Typically you get turned on to HR trainers I love them. God bless them. You know, I'm not talking um, disparagingly about them, but this is not training. Um, you got to find people who are really, really, you know, bought into this idea. And um, I'm not sure you're going to find them in your HR departments. I think I would actually look outside of, you know, traditional people in HR roles 
and find people who just have a passion for, for this work and for helping with others. And, you know, then build your team. I mean, if you, for us, so the size of the company, you know, five people, we're going to be able to do our onboarding differently. Um, we're going to be able to come along, come around and coach on offsites. We're going to be able to help leaders. You know, we're going to be able to facilitate a lot of off offsites, create thematic goals, you know, use tools to help do a lot of coaching, a lot of mentoring, a lot of consulting. We're just building capacity. Wow. And I think the capacity wow. is best built by finding, finding people who come to you who really want to do what, what we do. Hmm. So, so RVA, I love that. What positions did those people hold or do they hold when, uh, when they came to you? Like the, you, you're saying like they're not traditionally in the HR role or in the traditional HR role. What role do they have? We had one came out of sales, two have come out of operations, one, you know, an executive assistant that we've plugged into some things. And then, uh, you know, our chief culture, people and culture officers on that team as well. But, you know, four of the five really honestly they came to us yeah and said, hey, so cool. i think i want to help with this stuff yeah yeah it's almost like we should rebrand it it's not train the trainer it's like equip the champion or yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Co coach the champ we're, we're going to champion coaching or something but yeah it's, it's it's unleashing people that get this work to be internal consultants that's that's a that's a big paradigm shift we think yeah, and and has it become their full-time job or is it something they do like in addition to other responsibilities? Yeah. So that's a great question. So in, in two of the cases, it's their full-time job. So we, you know, we had to backfill oh, wow. and, you know, it's always hard. And so these folks are also A players. So, you know, you're basically asking somebody to give up an A player to go, to go do this. But we have this wonderful term in the army. It's called additional duty. Um, for three of the folks, it's an additional duty. You know, it's, you know, it's five to eight hours, six to eight hours, you know, maybe a week, maybe it's 10, 20 hours a month. It's, it's an additional duty to get plugged yeah. in and help a team here and there. Yeah. I love yeah. it. I love it. And, and if you were to say, okay, here's, here's the duty or here's the job description for these folks, like how, how would you bullet point that out? What do they, what do they do? Well, I mean, I tell them that we're going to, you're going to become a principal consultant internally. All right. But if you then if your toolkit might be a little bit different. So we've got some people who are, you know, when I say additional duty, they're they're working on working genius and they might get plugged into onboarding. But we've got of the five plus me, six, three to four, they could be principal consultants with the table group. Hmm. I mean, I'm trying to give them, you know, again, military, we call it full spectrum operations, full spectrum consultancy <laughs> skills here. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's reading, getting naked and it's asking the questions and understanding the difference between being a consultant, uh, you know, a mentor, a coach, really seeking to become a trusted advisor. So and it, what's happened is we're beginning to see some of our leaders instead of because I'm only in Chicago once a month. So instead of calling me or coming to me, they're beginning to come to a Colby or to a Maria. And that's when you kind of know that it's working when leaders who want to grow and get some help, they're they're looking at others as, hey, I can trust that advisor over there. Let me let me run this by and see what this agenda should look like. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. The other thing I want to call out there, RVA, is 
not only are leaders or other people saying like, okay, I'm willing to give up this A player so that they could go do another role that is really good for the organization. It might hurt my department short term, but like, obviously that's one of those things we talk about in the five dysfunctions of a team where it's like when people are willing to give up resources for the betterment of the company, that's great. Yep. What it also shows is just how important that company is viewing org health. Like they are saying like, yes, that a player go do that. Cause we so value org health and we so want to be, this is such a competitive advantage for us that we want to build that department up and, and we, we want to leverage those people and those champions. So I, I, I yeah. love what you're doing over there. That's so great. And what they're doing. Well, I mean, it all goes back. If Anton and Damon didn't really believe yep. in it, you know, I yep. mean, it goes back to principle number one, is a leader going to believe and own and be passionate about this? And where that answer is yes, I mean, great things can happen. Where the answer is no, you know, get good at being mediocre. Yeah. <laughs> Man, this is this is this has been a great conversation. That's probably a good place to leave it. I'm really proud of Anthony Murano Company. I'm really excited about what you're doing there. And it strikes me, Rick, that nothing that you've talked about today is rocket science. It's all pretty simple to understand. Like you there's not any magic wand to doing it. But what you've inspired me with is just the intentionality of doing simple things really, really well and doing them for a specific purpose. And so I, I hope this is something that our, our clients can find useful and practical of, of how to embed org health deep within the bones of the organization. Yeah. I'm, well, thanks for having me on. And if there are questions or any ways that I can help you or your clients, just reach out. Awesome. Hey, RVA, I, of course, I want to thank you for joining us. I also, this being September 12th, want to thank you for your service and your family sacrifice. I was actually reading the George W. Bush speech from two years ago on the 20th anniversary. And it was like I was thinking of you as I was reading it. And uh, it's a pretty emotional speech anyway. And then you think about somebody who like really served this country and it is even more emotional. So thank you for your service and family sacrifice. You're welcome. And I'm really looking forward to the time when we can get back together and have a glass of wine or something and be face to face. Those are some real fun, fun evenings. I hope we can do that again. (laughs) I would love that. I would love that. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. You can see why Keith and I were so excited to have our good friend RVA on really enjoyed that. And We look forward to having you again on our next Org Health Advantage podcast. Thanks for listening to the Org Health Advantage. Your hosts, Keith and James, are helping leaders change the world of work and invite you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. For more resources on building stronger teams and organizational health, check out tablegroup.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.